This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 244 with guest Ali Shapiro. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ask Makers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad you are here. I am in a very excited mood today as I am recording this intro for several reasons. I am about to host my Daring Way retreat in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm so excited to meet the women who are dedicated and who are coming to do this work. And also, I am still actually enrolling a few spots in the mentorship, which also incorporates the Daring Way work. And I'm getting the workbooks ready to send out. I'm still having some calls with uh, some women as I fill these last few spots. So if you are interested in joining, but you're not really sure what it is, I invite you to go and check out the Q&A jam that I did yesterday. And it's over at yourkickasslife.com slash meet. You don't have to put in your email address anywhere. Just go to yourkickasslife.com slash meet. The replay is there. I talk about shame resilience and the curriculum, what exactly we're going to be doing in that program, what exactly you can walk away with if you commit to the program and show up and do the work. This work transforms lives, y'all. This is not a beginner's program. This is not surface level personal development work. That's part of the reason I'm so excited about it and just really, really thrilled to get this work out to more people in a group format. Also really excited because I have some really great changes that are happening with Your Kick-Ass Life in 2019. I know it's like only summer, but I'm already thinking about 2019 and just really pumped to expand and bring you more great guests. And I am, I, I should probably wait to announce this, but I'm going to anyway, because I'm really excited about it. I'm rolling out a new series on the podcast called Conversations About Shit That Matters with Unqualified People. Because a long time ago, I sent out a survey and y'all let me know that it would be really great to hear from people who aren't always experts, who aren't always, here's what I think, here's my experience. I mean, that's great, right? That's why we're all here to learn from people who know more than us. But sometimes, and this is what you said in your survey, a lot of you said, I would love to hear you interview and have guests on that maybe who've just been through some shit. You know, they're just like regular people who maybe aren't life coaches. And so I am going to bring on some people and these are my real life friends. Some of them are life coaches because they're my friends, <laughs> but I'm having conversations with the, with them about stuff they are not experts in. That's why I'm calling it, you know, conversations about shit that matters with unqualified people. And I've told some of my, my close friends about it. They're like, oh my God, I'm in. I'm terrified, but I'm in. And which actually brings me to talk to you about this particular episode. A few months ago, I will put the link in the show notes. I recorded two episodes with my dear friend, Kate Anthony, around started out as a conversation around body image. We were talking about our own journeys. We're in two different places 
on the path through our journey. And it was my experience and her experience. And it was such a rich, robust conversation. We decided we had to continue it and have a second episode. Both of those links will be in the show notes. And I got a lot of great feedback from people, including some experts who were like, I loved that conversation and I would love to chime in from an expert standpoint. And the reason that I chose Ali Shapiro to come on and talk to you about this is because she's not claiming that she has every single answer about everything about this topic. Diet culture and weight loss is complicated. It's really, really complicated. And me personally, coming from a background in fitness... I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in this episode. It might've been a past one. I was in college getting my bachelor's degree in exercise physiology, kind of during the height and the explosion of the quote unquote obesity epidemic. And I was just really indoctrinated with all of this information about it, which so much of it is bullshit. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into it because Ali's going to talk about it. And I, I asked her some questions that I was genuinely curious about. I have a lot of experts on where I ask them questions where I either already know the answer or I have a very confident take on it (laughs) myself. (laughs) This is my show, by the way. And Ali, I didn't know the answers. I'm like, I'm genuinely curious about all of these things. So excited to have you get to listen to this conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we jump in. Ali Shapiro is the founder of Truce with Food, host of the top-ranked podcast, Insatiable, a holistic nutritionist, integrated health coach, and rebel with a serious cause. She's academically, practically, and empathetically aware of how the medical system, diet culture, and body positivity movements all have their own flavor of crazy. So without further ado, here is Ali. Miss Ali Shapiro, thank you for being here. Oh, Andrea, thank you for having me. I'm really honored. I I have really been looking forward to this, not just all day, but for weeks, because as a lot of my listeners have already heard, and if you have not listened to it, I encourage you, the links will be in the show notes. My friend Kate Anthony and I came on a few months ago and had a candid, honest conversation about our bodies and about um, weight and about diet culture. And it sort of um, really sparked this whole conversation on social media. And and I knew I wanted to, ha- I've had a couple of experts before who've touched on diet culture, but not really dove in. And I'm excited to have you on to talk about that. And so where I want to start is tell us your story. How did you, I mean, I'm sure you didn't come out of the womb being like all <laughs> body acceptance. <laughs> It was like easy in your teens and 20s. (laughs) So, I mean, please tell us that was not the case. So we'd love to just kind of hear your story and your background a little bit about how you got here in 2018. Yeah. So I think the, the, the turning point for me was about the age of 23 and I'd gone to the doctor because I was gaining weight. And even though I was like emotionally eating at night, I was like, but I'm exercising enough, right? Like this should not be happening. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that it was my thyroid. And I basically went to the doctor and, and while I was waiting for her to come in, I, I looked at my medical file and I, my medical I had cancer as a teenager at 13. I then struggled with depression, all the antidepressants I had been on. I was then diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. I had struggled with acne. I had tried antibiotics, Accutane, all this stuff. And so I kind of saw in black and white all the diagnoses that I had. And I just kind of had this realization that, oh my God, I am not 
I don't have cancer, but I'm not healthy by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination. And I, the doctor came in, she was like, your thyroid's fine. She gave me a recipe of salmon and she told me to sprinkle Splenda on top of it. And it, it's so funny to me that this is kind of what shook me or woke me up. But I had known that Splenda and in independent research studies was known as a carcinogen. And I'm mm-hmm. like, why would you recommend that to a cancer survivor? And so I kind of walked out of there knowing that I wasn't going to get my answers from Western medicine. And I, but before that I had, you know, I had my first Weight Watchers weigh in at 11, <laughs> gone back and wow. forth to Weight Watchers, had tried all the diets, you know, through college and all that stuff. And basically gradually I became open to this, this field called functional medicine, which is basically looking at root cause resolution. So depression, it wasn't a diagnosis. It was a symptom of being really inflamed. And what I basically put together over a couple of years, this was about 15 years ago before this kind of um, information was less mainstream, was that my gut had been really destroyed from the chemotherapy and the steroids Mm. and the antibiotics. And so half of my weight gain had been from just eating the wrong foods and being really inflamed. And and then once I was able, I, I was so shocked that I did not know this information, that I had only been looking at things in calorie, in terms of calories or points, but never that food could be medicine. And I was like, how did I not know this? Like if anyone has incentive to look at food as like health food, a cancer survivor does, Right. right? But instead I was just like fixated on pounds and calories. And so I had gone to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. I had been mentored in functional medicine and started seeing people on the side and realized that after the fourth session, these people stopped talking about food. We stopped talking about food, my clients. And I also noticed this curious thing that as I became more resilient as a business owner, the less I emotionally ate. Mm-hmm. When I had heard that a lot of business owners, you know, it's, and, and don't get me wrong, I had sleep issues, I had other challenges, but I was really curious about one, why did I not know that food could be medicine? And two, why are my clients and I stopped talking about food after the fourth session and what's happening here? So I went back to grad school to really study what was happening and it sent me down a rabbit hole. Be careful what you ask. <laughs> and basically I was able to resolve my emotional eating by becoming more resilient and feeling, um, a sense of belonging and safety that wasn't dependent on me losing weight. Because what I've ultimately realized is one of the the myths that weight loss is that weight loss promises us is belonging, that it will Mm -hmm. be safe to be who we are. We'll have the resilience and courage to go after what we want. Right. I mean, my clients don't say this, but they say I'll be the real me or I'll just feel more bulletproof or whatnot. Um, but what they're really saying and what I was craving from weight loss and my own emotional eating was I want the resilience and courage to go after what I want in life. Oh my gosh. So many yeses in that. And of course, like so many rabbit holes I want to go down with you <laughs> in that story. And I think the thing that stood out to me the most reminded me of something that I mentioned in those previous episodes was that I had bought into that as well. And and I and and it's it's a story I told before, but it was one that was so just a punch in the face to me when I was probably my sickest. And um, for me, my symptoms were heavily restricting calories and purging with exercise was very thin. And my then new husband, it was my first husband, said to me, you seem the most confident you've ever been. And I remember feeling like that should have kind of been a compliment, I think. And he meant it as a compliment. And I felt like, and I, and I remember, I distinctly remember thinking, if this is what it takes for me to be confident, 
then I am losing. Like what, what is wrong with the world? <laughs> Cause I feel like I'm dying and, and I was literally starving and I just, I was fucking pissed off, you know, excuse me for having to throw in an F-bomb in the first few minutes of this podcast episode, it. but that's, that's, I had never thought of it that way that you said that, that that's what weight loss promises us. And the media tells us that if we are overweight, we are wrong. Yeah. And you know, I'm so glad you brought that up about you might be the most confident because the, the, the challenging thing, and I say this as a myth because a myth is some, it's not the whole truth, but it's partly true. And that unfortunately in our culture, we, there is a stigma around being overweight right? Like that we know from the research that there's discrimination for being obese. We know that the people who get celebrated from celebrities or whatever are thin. Mm -hmm. And so for us to just say, Hey, you're not going to have like, you're not going to be confident only from losing weight. That's not the whole truth. Like people will respond to you differently. Not everybody, but a a large portion of the population will. And so we have to reconcile that nuance and figure out like, well, do I want this to be dependent on outside people or is it about finding, you know, the people that want, want to recognize me, like not just give me attention because of my body, but actually recognize my strengths and talents. And I think an important part of diet culture isn't just about what your body looks like. I, I joke that people who don't have religion find nutrition, mm-hmm. right? And so or they find personal development. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, first they find nutrition, then they find personal development, and then yep. or the other way around. <laughs> you're the other way <laughs> around. Yeah, uh-huh. depending on what your clients are coming to you for, right? But like, if you're in the vegan community, it's not just about being vegan. It's about okay, you have this whole moral compass now. You can't use leather shoes. You can't. You know, we're saving the earth, even though if you look at sustainability systems, you know that's not necessarily. <laughs> vegan agriculture is not necessarily going to save the climate either. Um, and then in the paleo camps, you know, you have CrossFit and you're, you're giving people built in community mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that per se. However, it brings its own pressures because most people, there isn't one diet that works for everyone. And I mean, diet as a noun, not a verb, but then you kind of get sucked into like, Oh my God, like I've had so many people who are like, I'm, I'm paleo on Instagram, but I'm binging, you know, on sugar at night. And, but they feel like their belonging there is at risk because they could be separated from, from the, the community that, that feels that they've accepted them. Yes. Yes. So much. Yes. And let's, let's kind of back up a little bit because I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse with, with diet culture. And I know a lot of people listening, they're like, yeah, I get it. I know what it is, but I want to sort of, and what I was, what I was talking to you about when we first started recording before we started recording was that I do think that there's a many, maybe a lot of listeners that know what it is, but they still, it's like, I, I don't believe you. Like maybe I believe in ghosts, but I haven't ever seen one. So I don't know. I think that might be the thing with diet culture. Like, you know what it is, the definition of it, but you're not sure that it really exists. So you call it a seductive driving narrative and you you have to kind of know what it is. You have to see it before you can unhook from it. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So I look at diet culture as a nesting doll within three other nesting dolls. So the first nesting doll we have is patriarchy, right? Which tells us men are better than women or men, you know, and this is part of more value than women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. More value. And I think that's part of why so many women struggle with their bodies because we're, we, you're the challenge with, with your body is you can't hide that, right? If you haven't, if you're judging someone, you can kind of hide it. If you're judging yourself, you can kind of hide it. Your body is like out there to be misunderstood and judged, unfortunately. And women's bodies are judged more, more harshly. So 
we have patriarchy, which is one nesting doll, or it's like the kind of the, the smallest one. And then out, not the smallest in terms of heft, but you know, you've uh-huh, got that. Uh-huh. And then outside of that is white supremacy. And so then you have, okay, whiteness over people of color. Right. And so it's like, this is why in the well, at least in my world, the white wellness community, the people who are often put up in diet culture tend to be white, thin, blonde, you know, these uh-huh. kind of things. And then with, and then after that, you have capitalism, which is basically your worth is determined how much you produce, that the body's a widget, right? And then that's, so then if we go into diet culture, diet culture has all of these kind of blended together and tells you your, your worth <laughs> is slowly diminishing, not only based on these three other nesting dolls, but then based on what you look like, based on health has now become a moral issue, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, this political debate about SNAP recipients, we should tell them how to eat because they don't have discipline. It's like, mm. no, they don't have access to food, right. food desert, you know? So to me, diet culture is a product of all of these other systems, but it basically is restricting you and telling you that your worth is only available to you within a certain amount of, uh, if you're thin, tall and blonde mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can't belong and you have to earn your worth if you're outside of that, that matrix, or even in the body positivity one, now you can be bigger, right? Quote unquote bigger, but you still have to have that wealth piece of, of capitalism, right? Like the, the body positivity people that get celebrated are often models. They're often people who can afford to be really beautiful because it costs money to, mm-hmm. to create beauty, right? It does. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> as, I've, as I age, yes, I've looked into how expensive it is. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I see, I, I'm seeing by what you're saying that it's complicated and it's, and not just that, but it's multi-layered. Yes. Yeah. But ultimately it restricts us and makes us feel like we have to prove our worth, that we are wrong to use your words. I love that. It sets up this constant conflict that there's something wrong with us. And because we can't hide from that, because you can't hide your body, it, it, it affects everything. Like mm-hmm. I was reading an article about even feminism, like body's the last frontier. We've kind of <laughs> worked on certain issues and granted we have a lot of ways to go, but the body has been, you know, on one hand, diet culture isn't the answer. Um, but then on the other hand, in strains of body positivity, you're telling women just, just accept yourself. And you're still telling women how to feel versus really exploring what is this discomfort about? What is, why am I so confident when I'm thin, like when I'm at my lowest weight, but I'm angry and like, I'm, lo- I, I have to be losing if this is winning to your point yes. of your story. And it's also complicated because the argument that I also hear is I can't, I can't feel good about what I am teaching and educating people on and celebrate obesity slash people that are legitimately unhealthy, you know, diabetes and heart disease and all of these things. So where is the happy medium? Like, what am I supposed to do as someone who's a responsible leader, you know, as a woman? And that, that's the argument I've, I've heard from some of my colleagues and I, I get it. It's complicated. It is. And what's interesting, and that's part of the culture saying that, okay, weight means you're unhealthy versus we know from research that as people mm-hmm. get older, they're called tofies thin on the outside, fat on the inside there, you know, that's the medical term, but they tend to die at twice the rate as they get older because they haven't had to quote unquote care, right? Mm -hmm. Because their weight hasn't been affected, but they're getting inflamed and their body's deteriorating inside. They just happen to have the, you know, the genetics that they don't put on weight the same way that someone else who 
who has to, you know, quote unquote care, even though, and then it's also the science is behind, right? Because we believe that we're widgets. You know, I always say we're wonders, not widgets. But if you look at from a capitalistic lens, we are what we produce. We're machines. But what we know about weight is so much more complicated. It's about your gut microbiome. It's about your hormones. It's about your stress. It's about unresolved trauma. It's all these other multifactors factors. But when you reduce the conversation to calories or calories in, calories out, then you get the stigma of, well, you must not be disciplined or you must not have willpower. And that's just not true. But can I stop you for a second? Wait, I I love this point, but I literally had a guy say that to me before. (laughs) (laughs) Say what? Disciplined. And I was not overweight. I was probably what you would call like the ideal size at that time. This was probably my late twenties. And I had broke up with my, my long-term boyfriend for like five minutes. And I was dating this guy who I will not say his name, but he's a very, he is the great nephew of a very famous fitness person in the world. And he touched my stomach and made like a backhanded comment about how I wasn't disciplined. And that's actually all you, and I was like, okay, that was really shitty. But anyway, it just made me think of it. I I didn't mean to interrupt you, but sometimes guys are dicks. (laughs) Well, and I would say the fitness industry, you know, they, people are just taking what they got trained in, right? Mm -hmm. Like the average, it takes seven on average, 17 years for updated medical information to translate into your doctor's office. And by then it's already probably outdated, but trainers are trained in this, you know, calories in calories out model. And so it's not often kind of the, the amount of education you have, but how you're educated, right? Because, you know, if you're, if you're a trainer who's gone through trauma yourself or whatever, often lack of discipline or willpower, and we can get into, you know, later we're going to get into the three patterns of, of why we, what I call, some people would call it self-sabotage. I call it self-protection because these behaviors often of thinking like we don't want to get to the gym or we're eating, we're feeling at risk in some way. Um, but in your case, if you're thin, it's just like, this is what your body naturally is like a natural resting place. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the spot in my body that's always since puberty stored any fat that's on my body, it will go immediately to my belly. And the way that my posture is, it makes it stick out. And I, my daughter's eight and she, and I'm looking at her and she has the exact same body type. And my mom has the exact same body types. It's just genetics. But it was interesting. It's like, you know, that comment that he made, that was patriarchy at work and diet culture. And just, and, and, you know, that's like one of the only things I remember about that short relationship. And it was just, it was painful. It totally sucked. But let's, let's actually jump, jump to that part because, and here's a question I get a lot, um, well, a fair amount is around the topic of self-sabotage. And that's why I would love to hear your, your take on it is that, for example, um, I plan, you know, I have my gym membership. I put it in my calendar. I do my meal prep and then the food sits in the fridge and I end up ordering takeout and I don't go to the gym at all. So you, is this kind of what you call your inner protector? Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is, so first of all, we have to look at things in a holistic sense, first of all, because often, and this is why, you know, quote unquote, food food freedom is so elusive is that people are often looking at, well, what's happening in that moment that I don't want to go. Meanwhile, looking at these bigger patterns that might've been at play, you know, earlier in the day, last night, something that you're worried about. But yeah, a lot of people would call that your inner food rebel or, you know, that you're self-sabotaging. However, what I've seen with clients, 
clients is that it's often a protective mechanism. And there's three patterns of what we're basically that. So you talked about like, we feel like we're wrong, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Often from our bodies. And so this sets up a mental internal conflict. And these patterns are based on the Thomas Kilman conflict model. I've adapted them for food and body issues. Um, But whenever we feel that we're in conflict, that we're wrong, I've, I've, cook my food. um, I have a gym membership and I'm not going, I'm doing something wrong, right? There's something wrong there rather than, huh, what let's explore here. So the three patterns are to compete, avoid, or accommodate. And I call these our stress responses. So we feel like we're doing something wrong either around food or body or the stress in our life that then basically sets up this tension and depletion, which is why we don't have the energy to go to the gym or we want to numb out. And what happens is when we're competing, we basically set up a black and white perspective of things, right? I'm either ahead or behind, I'm winning or I'm losing. And so often, or if we're avoiding, we set up an all or nothing thinking frame of things. So this is tends to be the all or nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And I know people listening struggle with this. So ladies, listen up. Yeah. (laughs) Black and white dichotomous thinkers. And then the third pattern is to accommodate and where we tend to think either or. And so what happens is either of these, when we go into the stress response, what happens is we feel powerless and it's not the feeling, it's, it's not the stress itself. It's not that we feel wrong. It's when we feel powerless. And by powerless, I mean, we have no choices. And when we feel like we have no choices, that's when we're actually eating or not going to the gym to protect ourselves from that feeling of not having, of feeling powerlessness. So for example, the the competitor, I had a client, you know, she goes to the beach, she's feeling, and this actually mirrors what Kate was saying on the, the podcast, you know, feeling really good. And then she's in the bathing suit, uh, you know, on the beach with her friends. And all of a sudden she starts comparing herself, right? Mm-hmm. She's feeling at risk and it, it, the body it's on the body. It's because of, okay, on the surface, it's about her body in a bathing suit. But when she really, this was my client looks at it more deeply. It's like, Oh my God, I think, look, they have this, they have that I'm behind, right? She's like, she's not just comparing her body. She's comparing her life with them. Mm-hmm. And it's not that she necessarily is jealous of what they have, but she's feeling behind. And in that in that feeling behind, it feels like, well, I have no choice because all she can see is black and white solutions of like lose weight or not. And then it feels like, well, I can't do that. I've been trying that. Right. Or this person has that great relationship that I will never have. And again, that's that same black and white thinking that 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 competitor sets up. And we often do this with food and body. We compare ourselves to our younger selves or to when we were quote winning at weight loss, right? Mm -hmm. Our thinner selves. And so these patterns, the eating and the not going to the gym or whatever, what, you know, in, in the avoid pattern, we call chuck it, fuck it. It's like, when you're avoiding, that's more protective because you feel like you don't have any choices um, rather than than it being about discipline or willpower. Because, I mean, Andrea, I read your books. I follow your work. Your clients are pretty motivated in other areas, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Very. <laughs> it's like, why would you all of a sudden be undisciplined in this one specific area? Like, that makes no sense. Right. But if we assume that women are inferior, right, going back to patriarchy, well, of course you don't like your body. Of course you don't have willpower or discipline. The system is set up for you to feel that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and then it's going to confirm it at every possibility mm-hmm. chance that you can get. That you're not like the others. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And what happens is our inner protector, this is kind of like total like jujitsu in a way, is in, when you're comparing yourself, you start to isolate avoid, you just start to get resentful, accommodating, you start to like, you're accommodating everybody else, but yourself, you start to get really depleted. What ends up happening is this inner protector makes us feel more and more different and that we're more and more unique. And that only, 
we can't figure this out. Mm -hmm. And then what happens though, is we also have these, at least I know with my clients, I, I joke that we're healthy rebels, bad joiners. We do have these parts of ourselves that we like that are different. So we protect it on, on like, we don't like it when we feel so different, but then we protect that different narrative because it served us also in really other great ways, whether in our careers or, or whatnot. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those episodes that people have to listen to more than once because yeah. it's so rich with information. And I just want to pause and say thank you so much because this is so eye-opening to me. And and I like I said in those past episodes, this is not, this is not, I, I say of all the personal development areas, I felt pretty confident in the beginning that I could help people with this until I was re until I realized like how complicated it is and how multi-layered it is. And then I was like, um, I don't think this is my area of expertise. <laughs> and so I refer out to, to some of my clients who, who deeply, deeply struggle with this. And it just is, it's so, I don't want to say it's a relief because that is absolutely not the right word, but that it's, it's systemic. Yeah. And I'm glad, and, and, and I really appreciate that you honor how complex it is because I say food is the one challenge. Like we can't stop eating, right? Right. It's not <laughs> like alcoholism, which I feel like I have a good handle on where we can abstain and go out about our life and our lives can be amazing. That's not the case with food. Yeah. We can't be all or nothing. It's, you know, you talk about this in your latest book about surrendering, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like we, and, and a lot of the emotional stuff of when we're competing, avoiding, or accommodating is what we consider those bad emotions. And, and bad is a relative term, but the, those identities that we love about ourselves, like hardworking or like a great mom, those, those definitions of that have been influenced by patriarchy. They're what I, they're definitions I call or what, um, come, stem from what I call the good girl mindset, uh -huh. right? Like, oh, this is the this is the way to define this. And so it's actually about exploring these really uncomfortable, vulnerable things of like, okay, I may love my kids, but I don't love the way motherhood's structured in this society. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, am I a bad mom because I'm going to take time for myself? And it's like, we ha you, it, once you get out of these conflict styles and move to our, what's called collaboration, where you're working with your path, your body, your values, you realize that you can, those uncomfortable emotions can be really valuable, but it's, it's, a, it's tricky. It's yeah. very tricky. Well, tell me, cause I know I have some listeners cause, cause you and I are white women, but I know I have some listeners from that are, that are women of color. So is it different? Cause I know that some cultures are different, like the Hispanic culture. And sometimes the African-American culture is different. How, how much, how they revere the shape of women's bodies. So with your clients who are women of color, do you notice a difference? Is it just nuanced or what does that look like? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I have a lot of women of color. Well, I shouldn't say as when I was in Philadelphia, I had more women of color clients. Um, however, it, it's different, but it's the same. So a lot of them, um, of my women of color, they come to me at the point of having heart palpitations or having a specific diagnosis. Right. Um, and the difference and, and unfortunately is a lot of their emotional stuff. They don't have as much safety and protection on a societal level as we do as white women. I remember working with one, um, African American woman and she was the head of a news department in Philadelphia. And she was telling me that she had a circle of, of African-American friends who, that whenever they would go out at night, they would all make sure they would text each other once they got in because the news wasn't going to find news wasn't going to come calling if they were missing. Mm. 
And so I think in the sense that often they have more pressure, like real, because what I show my clients is a lot of times this perceived, this conflict that we feel is perceived about 80% of the time, it really is perceived. And, and we can really collaborate well with our lives and the people in our lives and the pursuits we care. But I would say when it comes to women of color, in terms of the emotional pressures that cause the stress, right, it's kind of like the death by a thousand paper cuts, they have more pressure and and less safety than we do. Um, they're not looking to get super skinny, um, but they do really care about their health and they're educated and they can't figure out, you know, why, why this isn't working the same way that white women are too. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, but I don't think they're looking for the same. Although what's interesting is about half my clients don't have any weight to lose either. Right. Not more and more people come. Unfortunately, the more that I've doing, I've been doing this for 12 years now, more people are coming to me with more health issues in tandem with not being able to lose weight. Cause I don't promise weight loss, but I say often it's a side effect if you're reducing your inflammation and your stress and, and all that kind of stuff. But more and more, um, I would say all people are just coming with, with autoimmune issues, heart palpitations, like a lot of things. So, hmm. but, um, so the, the process is the same, but we, st- we have to totally honor the different pressures and safety mechanisms, um, you know, in terms of emotional and physical safety, safeties that we have as with being different races. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and, and talk about, we sort of touched on it a little bit about belonging and talk to us about the specific role that vulnerability and belonging in food and body struggles. How does that all come together? Yeah. So for a lot of my clients, you know, when, when they come, we, they, my program is called truce with food. So it's about having this, like, I just don't want to think about food anymore. And so, and what is really different about my approach is that what I have them start doing is paying attention to when they feel at risk, when during their day, do they feel at risk? And that's when the mental food gymnastics happen when they're feeling vulnerable about something. So for example, one of my clients is, uh, she's a big leader at a, at an institution and she really prided herself on being like the easygoing fun leader. Right. And so she has one of her team members though, that is underperforming at her team. And she was, when she came to me though, it was about food. Right. But then like about a month or two in people were like, Oh my God, this actually has very, it, it still is about the food in some aspects, but not a lot. And so she would notice that she noticed that she started thinking about food whenever she had to start to interact with this team member because she was avoiding having the conversation Mm. (laughs) that she was underperforming. So it had nothing to do with food or did she want this food in the moment or whatever, you know, the food, it was not about the food. So asking yourself, like, is this worth it? Taking a deep breath. Most, most, uh, tactics out there are giving the food more power they're, and they're giving you more rules just to resist, which mm-hmm. just increases the battle versus I was saying, okay, so you feel at risk because this is, you're not, you feel like you're not going to be the fun, easygoing leader if you have this conversation. So we talked about her having the conversation in a collaborative way. What if this wasn't a conflict? What if, what if I wanted the best for our team and the best for this underperforming, uh, underperforming team member. And so she really, and, and then we connected to, you know, belonging. We first have to belong to ourselves, meaning we have to see what we value and what we care about, because if we're just valuing what the culture is, we, we, we can, you know, it's like, it's like always hungry. Never water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So she was like, I want to be open. I want to be the type of person who can have these conversations. And so, so we connected with that. Like she cared about truth and openness. And so she had the conversation. It turns out the team member was so relieved because she felt like she was failing her and they didn't solve the issue on the spot. Right. But they put a plan in place and belonging was an intimacy was forged in that moment that they didn't have before. And she was like, I can't, I feel like she used the metaphor. A weight was lifted off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. Right. And now, and she never had the food gymnastics at work anymore until another stress. And then we had to work on that. But, but it was realizing that it was about feeling at risk of that identity, um, that was causing the mental food gymnastics. And often clients will start caring about weight loss because they think, oh my God, this would just be easier if I was 20 pounds thinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> mm-hmm. But again, that's that resilience that they're looking for, for dealing with uncomfortable emotions, which we've been told uncomfortable emotions are bad. However, I've seen them to be really productive, but we also, part of another characteristic of a white supremacy culture is that conflict is inherently negative because you don't want to disrupt the power structures. Mm-hmm. However, c- conflict can be really constructive when done really, really well. Yeah. I a thousand percent agree with that. I actually talked about that in my book too, about just when I talked about boundaries, that I think that it's a, it's a, it's a misconception that boundaries or like you were describing hard conversations, conflict, and sometimes confrontation. I think the word confrontation is just, it has a bad reputation, but that we, especially as women, that that is, I'm reading this book right now. Um, it's called In Praise of Difficult Women. And Ooh. it's profiles of people like Coco Chanel and Amy Poehler and um, Rachel Maddow and all of these women who are deemed difficult. And one of the, there's several factors that they all kind of have in common. And it's, you know, speaking their truth, saying no, and, you know, confrontation, you know, conflict head on. And that is labeled as difficult. And we don't, we tend to not want to be labeled as a difficult woman. And I'm like raising my hand as I'm reading through all these stories. And I'm like, I do that. I do that. Like I am, I'm clearly a difficult woman. And, you know, like I think finally at this age, I'm like, I'm okay with that and actually proud of it. And, but when you were explaining all of that, that's what I was thinking of, you know, just, I think so many of us have that fear that, and that, and to me, t- what you described, that's just, that's being vulnerable. That's being a leader. You have to have these hard conversations with team members sometimes. And I don't like doing it either. <laughs> I want everyone to like me. I don't right. want to. Oh, I struggle with like wanting everyone to like me too. And I think that's the other thing about belonging is that as the old, as the more we practice this and the more we get our self-trust back about what really matters to us, I think this is about another big lie of diet culture that we need everybody to accept us. And as you start to really find your truth and trust yourself and go on your own path, which ultimately, you know, you have to do if you're going to be healthy. It's not about what your diagnosis with medication you're on. It's like, are you alive? Are you taking chances? And only you can do you, right? But it's like, once people start to realize, oh my God, I'll find the people. I don't need everyone. Uh-huh. I just need, I just need a, like a core group of people who share the same values. And that's, that's when it's like dangerous for the patriarchy, but freedom, freedom for us. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've, that is one of the things that I never realized was going to be so important to my own personal development journey and my own learning and growing and stretching and discomfort. Cause I'm not going to say it was like, we were all, all me and my, you know, my core group of friends were like throwing daisies in the meadow with our boho skirts on. Like it did not look like that at all. I mean, there was, there've been some hard conversations. 
I have pushed people away. It's been, it's been a little messy sometimes, but it's been imperative. And I totally understand that I do think I have it a little bit easier because I work in this industry and I have access to people who also work in this industry who speak kind of the same language. But there there are ways for all y'all listening to find that core group of people. I wrote about it in chapter two, I think it is, at length in How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. So, okay, so there's so many things I want to ask you. And Let's talk about, because this whole concept of listening to your body, I think is like a term that gets thrown around in when we're talking about this topic. So can you talk about that? Like, how do we do it in a more methodical way? Because I think that what we hear a lot, what happens is we start to gain weight and then we freak out. And then it's like the, the, the diet cycle starts, I think, is what tends to happen. Yeah, totally. And so I'm going to, you know, because you're an entrepreneur and I know some of your listeners are and, you know, and, and your readers are, if you think about running a business, right, everyone has to find their own path, but there's certain tools that help you discern, right? What's right and wrong for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we, the body has similar tools and processes. And I think this is what gets lost in, especially a lot of my clients, they've read about intuitive eating and I, I'm not an expert on it. Um, I would say the end goal with me, with my clients is intuitive eating, but we get there a very different way. And that your body has discernment tools to help you figure out what works best for you. And so one of the two, the two, and this is looking at things from a health perspective, it doesn't mean you're going to lose weight or you're going to end up with a certain body size, but it means your body is going to be healthy. Um, cause I do agree with, with health, health at every size, like your weight does not determine if you're healthy or not. Yeah. Like that's just not how it is. But the two processes are your blood sugar and your gut health. And now uh, we've heard a lot about gut health, I think, you know, in the news and all that stuff. So we know that we want a good, good gut system. Um, a lot of my clients who struggle with depression, it's because their gut is inflamed. It's not because, and so there's a physical aspect to, to our health that we have to address. We can't just ignore the body and we can't restrict the body. Mm-hmm. We have to be with it the same way that we can't not eat. We have to be with it and learning it. And to me, self-love is defined as respect. And it's like, okay, the same way that if you were in a relationship with anyone, they all, they have needs, you have needs and your body has needs and your gut health is one of them. And blood sugar is the other one. I always start with blood sugar because it's the most immediate and people, a lot of my clients who struggle with anxiety, um, have trouble sleeping, heart palpitations. This is all from lack of blood sugar balance. And people think only diabetics have to pay attention to blood sugar balance, but we actually all need to pay attention to that. Um, and it's interesting, actually this morning I was on with a client and she's on tour for an album that she just released. And this was the, the, we started working together. This is the first time since she, since she's that, that she's toured and we've worked together and she's not eating after her shows. And she's like, I don't have that grabby feeling. She's like, I thought people had told me this was only emotional, but with my blood sugar balance, the physiology piece to this is so important. And I was like, I know. Um, and so really looking at what works for your body in terms of your blood sugar, and I can give you guys a couple tips to get started. And I always have my clients start with a breakfast experiment, do a, do a breakfast that's vegan, do a breakfast that's Mediterranean, and then do one that's paleo and check out how you feel for the next two to three hours. And your body will tell you immediately one, one, one breakfast, you're going to feel very calm, focused, satiated. The other one will definitely be bad. And one may be a little bit mixed. I'm assuming that you don't want to throw in like four cups of coffee with each one of those. (laughs) 
Because that's how I, mean, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without caffeine, your, okay. That'd probably be a better no, test. No, no. <laughs> you could do your caffeine, just drink it with food because co- coffee actually sends your blood sugar through the roof and then you crash. And that's when people crave carbs and then they think, oh, I'm weak and I love carbohydrates. And I'm like, no, your body is just famished. Right, like right, your body's right. not paying attention to calories. It's paying attention to does it have the right fuel and medicine? Mm-hmm. So it, it you that know, I you could eat. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're, if like, I'm someone who does better on like a Mediterranean paleo, like I, you know, I eat eggs and kale every morning. If I were to do like a bagel, you could do the same calories, but I would be crashing five minutes after the bagel. Yeah. I've noticed that just, and I have especially noticed that my body reacts certain ways to certain foods as I've gotten older, probably when I passed age 35, every once in a while we'll go out to breakfast and I live in the South now and they do breakfast. And (laughs) when I, it was a few, several weeks ago, we went out and I did it up. Like I, I don't even want to say what I had. It was just so heavy. And I got home And I told my husband, I'm like, I feel like I could go to bed. And it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. And he was like, do you think it was the breakfast? And I'm like, I know it was that breakfast. Like just, I said, don't let me do that again. Cause that just, my body was telling me no, 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 (laughs) not worth it. Yeah. Yeah, And it really takes you out of this binary of good or bad, because I know my clients are always shocked. A lot of them have tried to be vegetarian. That didn't work. Or a lot of them are trying to be paleo when reality, a lot of women do need carbs, especially at lunch, Mm -hmm. complex carbs. But they're like, I can't believe this. Like I thought I was being good, you know, but it's like, I wasn't doing the right things for me. And so all of a sudden you go from feeling like you're good or bad or right or wrong to like, okay, how do I want to feel? Sometimes I'm going to take the hit but I'm owning that, you know, and I, you know, but sometimes I don't want to and, and, and that's okay, but it's not about good or bad. It's making it more like, okay, how do I want to feel for the next three to four hours? And the more you do this, the more you're like, wow, you, you develop self-trust. Like actually I want to have energy and focus for my morning because I have to get a lot of shit done, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we tie it to the bigger piece, not just weight loss or to be good, to be good, but because it's now meaningful in your life on a daily basis. Cause adults, my, my master's is really an adult education and adults are not motivated by long, long-term gains. Like telling them, Hey, you may live 10 extra years is not going to motivate someone. But if you can say, Hey, you're going to feel good for the next two to three hours. Uh-huh. It's like, huh, I'll do that. Yeah. I think it's the same with like saving for retirement too. Like when you're 25, everyone's like, yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> I had I had one friend that was, and I was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and she's the one who bought a house first. She's the one now who's doing really well. <laughs> but yeah, I get it. All right, so I want to ask you this one last thing. And again, this has been so helpful. Everyone listening, I highly encourage you to go check out Ellie. We'll we'll tell you exactly where to go in just a minute here because I know everyone's probably again listening to this more than once because there's been so much information. But I, I know that you have like the one question we need to ask ourselves when the sort of mental food and body gymnastics or the body doubts creep in so that we can make progress on respecting our body. So what is that? Yeah. And so this is really important because, you know, if I was listening to this podcast, uh, the me of 16 years ago, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, no, it's really about the food, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no. Just tell so, me what to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I really want people to make the connection of where am I feeling at risk? So next time you start to have those mental food gymnastics or the body doubts, like ask yourself that and give yourself a minute to like respond, right? And you start to ask yourself that. Like, and if you are mainly uh, in that competitor pattern, you're probably going to be asking, I'm feeling, where am I feeling behind? 
right? This often happens with. So wait, let me stop you for a second because I I think that question like where am I feeling at risk? How would you how would you say that in other words? Because I'm I'm having a hard time grasping that. Like where how like where are you feeling most vulnerable? Yeah, or you could if you're if you're in a competitor mindset, it's like where am I feeling behind? That's like, how am like, I comparing myself to other people and feeling behind? Okay, yeah. feeling not enough. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Or like, where am I feeling at risk for rocking the boat? Usually we're, mm. we're in an avoiding pattern when we, when we feel like we're going to rock the boat or where am I at risk for like, where do I feel guilty? Right. That's uh-huh. tends to be when we're in those accommodator patterns. So that's another way of asking, where am I feeling at emotionally at risk or vulnerable? Those are, I love those, those deep sort of powerful questions. And I think that what I'm going to encourage people to do on that, because I think that sometimes those can be hard to answer in the moment. So what I would love for people to do is maybe bookmark that part of the episode or go back and write those questions down and journal on them instead of just trying to come up with the answer in your head and keep a journal. I mean, wouldn't you suggest that? My, I don't know if you do that with your clients, or, but that's what I would do. Yeah. I often have my clients set an alarm at like the seasons. I call them like the seasons of the day, like the spring is morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I call them. Or you could even go back at the end of the day. Cause sometimes because our, a lot of this, this has to do with our nervous systems. It's not just like our mental, it's our nervous system hijacks us. And that's why we feel so powerless. Um, but so at the end of the day, even going through starting your day and see where your, your food went off track or you started thinking about it and reflect on what was going on there. Like, was it really about the food or was I worried about the email that came in? Or did I just, you know, I got that call about my mom and trying to take care of her or whatnot. Um, but I think reflecting even in the evening, to your point, would give people more distance and be easier to answer. Do you think sometimes it's just a habit? Like if somebody, I'm asking for a friend, if somebody <laughs> like at anytime between eight or nine, when they sit down to watch Netflix with their husband and they're like, you know, it sounds good right now. Oreos and they have like, but they're not stressed and they don't feel like anything. Do you think sometimes it just becomes like a nightly habit or is it typically always something else? No, great questions. I think a lot of times the nighttime eating is more about the ritual. It's kind of like the, which is almost even different than a habit. It's like I'm bookmarking the day, right? Like this is the end of the day and it it helps ground us. Mm -hmm. Um, What's, what's tricky about that too is nighttime eating is sometimes blood sugar ba- imbalance as well. So if you, ha- if you haven't been balancing yourself during the day, it comes back with the vengeance at night. And so, and for some people, if those Oreos don't affect them, then who cares, right? Yeah. But if it's, if it's someone who's it's interfering their sleep, I'd say, hey, let's focus on getting your blood sugar balanced. And then if your blood sugar is balanced, you'll probably want like a healthier version of an Oreo. Maybe you still want something sweet, but it can be a more natural, you know, form of sugar. But then if it's not affecting you or your goals, I'd say who cares? That's interesting because obviously I was asking for myself and I know a lot of my listeners are in recovery from alcohol and I don't think it's any coincidence that I used to consume sometimes an entire bottle of wine a night, which has a lot of sugar (laughs) and then now sort of traded it in with something sweet. And it's just, it's been one of those things where I just haven't really, and it's not every single night, but I definitely think about it if I don't do it. And I'm trying to have self-compassion. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. And then many, many years ago when I did a whole 30, which we haven't even talked about, I replaced (laughs) it with an apple and um, almond butter and it was fine. Like nobody died <laughs> and, and it was the same. Like if, but I think that it, what it became the ritual of it and maybe sugar, but 
it's, 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 again, I think sometimes, I think maybe sometimes at the end of the day, we just don't know. It's <laughs> not right. an answer. Well, and, and two, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest surprises my clients have is how active these patterns are, these stress responses of compete, avoid, or accommodate. Like most people, I think a lot of women are more self-critical than self-aware. And so they're, they confuse the two. And so they're like, I feel really confident here. I'm not always accommodating, competing or avoiding. And then it's like, once you actually start to pay attention, those wind you up. Right. And so the sugar, and this is why food is so like nuanced, like sugar is actually unwinding you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's relaxing your temporarily, however, but yeah. so often we have normalized such a level of tension that when things are okay, we're like, woohoo. However, they the body. I always say, you know, this guy who studies trauma, uh, Vanderkoek, he has a book called mm-hmm. The Body Keeps the Score. Yes, I've recommended that before. Yeah. And I think that's true for for every habit that we have. I mean, and for every pattern, if we're trying to break it or we feel in our gut that that there's something more. But again, I, I'm a big believer. I mean, I call my program Truce with Food because if you want to have that and it's not like affecting your health or whatever, like I don't think it's a big deal. Uh, yeah. So I'm not. Yeah, I'm kind of like meh. I don't. I I don't. I I'm not. Lo- I don't think I'm losing sleep over it. But I have a couple last questions for you. So so how do you, you've you've talked about this pattern: the protector, the competitor, and then what was the other one? Oh, competitor, avoider, and accommodator. Avoider and accommodator. So how do people find out which one they are? Yeah. So I have a quiz on my website. You can go to alishapiro.com and it's right there on the homepage and it says, what's your comfort eating style? And so you can basically figure out what, what, what pattern you tend to have a, your prominent resting places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get some tools to start to get out of those patterns because it's different depending on what you tend to be. Yeah. Because Kate, who was on the podcast, the, the, those two episodes that I did, she took it and she forwarded me her results and she, in all caps, dead on exclamation mark. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? I don't know. So I'm going to have to go over there and take it as well. And then second question, how does somebody, cause you kind of just mentioned it might not be that big of a deal to your body. And I know you've mentioned inflammation and you've mentioned blood sugar. If somebody wanted to start, obviously they can work with you and go find out about that on your website, which we'll link to in the show notes. But what if they want to kind of like maybe go see their general practitioner and get some blood work done, which I hope that you're doing at least every year and going and getting your checkups. Where would they start with that? Fantastic question. So what they, and I'm all about people becoming proactive. Like that was one of the biggest things I learned is that the reason I didn't know any of this is because I had this identity as like a passive patient rather than like an active part of my medical team. Yeah. So you I can, and that person too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. trust My doctor. Okay. Whatever you say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in your hands. Right. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh my God. I'm, I'm glad I'm still here. Um, my, my dad's doctor is like, stay away from doctors. It's why we call it a practice, you know? Oh my gosh, <laughs> like, yeah. right. mm-hmm. But, um, so the, the three tests that I would have people ask for is their C-reactive protein test. And that will tell you, and insurance covers all of these, that will tell you how much inflammation you have in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you have any autoimmune issues, depression, anxiety, you probably do have, uh, you know, high levels of inflammation. But again, the body's really resilient. That's one thing that I did not realize. Um, having all the health issues I have, but I am at 39, pretty much the healthiest I've ever been. So the bodies can amazingly bounce back with health. So the C-reactive protein, and then you want to look at your A1C number and your A1C number measures your blood sugar 
over a six-week period. So that will tell you how resilient your blood sugar is because the more resilient your blood sugar is, the more you can go longer in between meals, the less you need to snack because your body's able to titrate the, the fuel for you. And then you'll want to look at fasting glucose. It's not quite as accurate, but it's what they all test. Um, so you could even look at old blood work. And the tricky thing is, is Western medicine they're testing on a relatively sick population. We are a relatively sick country. So they may tell you, hey, 110 is prediabetes for fasting glucose, but you really want to be under 90. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't all of a sudden develop type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome. It's, it's a gradual thing usually, a nine times out of 10. So really make sure that you're in that sweet spot for the A1C numbers and your fasting glucose. You want to be ideally under 90. Interesting. Okay, thank you so much. I like to give people action steps that are doable, you know, soon. So I think that would be really helpful for people. Thank you so much. Everyone run out and go and take that quiz on Ali's website and check her out more. I would love to have you on again, because again, I think this is such a big topic that is, can be talked about so much. And if you are part of the Patreon party, and if you're a patron, you can come over there. And I am 99.9% sure Allie will come back. And if you have specific questions for her, come over and let me know. And then when I have her on again, probably at the end of the year, if she's game, then we can ask her those questions because I want to know what you want to know. It's not, you know, obviously I don't have all of the best, most perfect questions and you are my audience. I care about you. So patrons, come on over there. I will post about that shortly. And thank you so much, Allie, for being here. This has been so informative. Well, thanks, Andrea, for the opportunity and the conversation. I love the questions and stories you have as well. And I tried to keep my stories down to a minimum because I could just take over the whole episode <laughs> with my stories. <laughs> but and, and listeners, thank you so much for your time. I know how how valuable your time is and that you really are such an integral part of this community. Thank you so much for being here every week. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey there, ass kickers. Before we go, hey, if you're still listening to this, I know that you are a loyal podcast listener. First and foremost, thank you so very much. If you haven't heard about becoming a patron yet, let me tell you real quick what it's all about. So now I'm giving people the option to support the podcast. I've decided to go ad free. That means no outside sponsorships or advertising on the podcast. And that also means that when you do become a patron, you get extra perks. And the really cool thing about right now is that because we've just started out. It's a small group of people. I think we have about 20 patrons over there and I do a book giveaway every month. So the chances are pretty good that you're going to win a book. <laughs> There's also lots of other perks. I'm doing listener Q&A episodes where I'm asking my patrons for questions. You'll start seeing these episodes. What else? When I have upcoming guests, I'm going to ask y'all, the patrons, what questions you want me to ask them. What kind of guests do you want me to have? This is the community that is going to be able to not just support the show, but be able to have their input really heard loud and clear for the show. If you want to see more about it, if you want to see the different tiers and how you can support and the bonuses that are involved, 
you can go to patreon.com slash Y-K-A-L and read all about it. That link will be also be in the show notes. And thank you so, so very much.